This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. As we step back into our sermon series uh, covering Nehemiah's life, his story, uh, I just want to do a, a brief recap, make sure we're all up to speed on the events that have been transpiring up to this point that we've been watching and learning from. We began in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah standing in the king's court, a servant to the king, the cupbearer, in fact. His responsibility was to present the cup to the king, to authenticate that the cup had not been tampered with, that the drink the king was about to consume had not been poisoned, that nothing was wrong with it. A very trusted position in the king's retinue. And Nehemiah, while standing by the king, was privy to a lot of information, a lot of, a lot of conversations, a lot of official things that happened while he was there. He was trusted by the king. And while he served, uh, one day, a group of Israelites from Jerusalem happened to come to the place where he was serving the king in, in Persia, the city of Susa. Nehemiah recognized among them his brother and began to ask about the, the condition of Jerusalem. And the report he got was not good. The temple was destroyed. The wall had been torn down, city lying in ruins. Nehemiah was heartbroken over that news. Wanting to resolve the situation, Nehemiah very carefully surrendered those things to the Lord and submitted them to him in prayer over the situation, over the result over what he should do in response. And after praying, he went before the king, presented his case, asked if he could go to repair the walls, to be a part of the solution to the problem that he recognized. The king authorized him to go, provided with him letters of authority, requisitions for supplies to rebuild the walls, and even an armed escort to ensure their safety. When Nehemiah arrived, the condition was just as he had heard. He invited the local Israelites who were still there in Judah and around Jerusalem to be a part of the rebuilding process with him. The other people that were living around Jerusalem saw what was happening, and they were not happy. They took exception to the fact that the Israelites were rebuilding their capital, this fortified position. They weren't happy about the, the place of authority that that would provide for them again. As they began to work against the people of Israel, trying to keep them from rebuilding the wall, trying even to, to attack threatening their lives. And in the midst of this, in the face of this opposition, Nehemiah organized the workers, armed them in the defense of the city, inviting the people who lived in the surrounding areas inside the safety of the walls to help keep watch, keep guard, and to protect all of them and the work they were doing from those foreign people. And it's here that we now step into chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you want to open and read with me, please do so. The words will be here on the screen. Also, if you want to use the YouVersion app on a phone or tablet, you can open up the YouVersion app, search for events, uh, under events for Parkview Finley, and find our scripture and sermon notes there as well. Let's begin reading verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. This is a difficult situation. The people 
of Israel had given themselves to the work that Nehemiah called them to, wholeheartedly, working with all of their hearts on, on the restoration of this wall. And in doing so, they left behind their farms, their homes, to come within the walls of the city, left behind their livelihoods, left crops standing in the fields in some cases, to dedicate themselves to this project, to protect themselves. And while King Artaxerxes provided materials for the construction, he didn't provide funds to pay the workers. This was a labor of love. This was, this was volunteer labor, the Israelites working on, on this project. So with the threat of foreign people, with the need to, to walk away from their homes, to defend themselves within the city, they were experiencing an oppressive economic weight. Dire situation. And they cried out in despair. Cried out for help. Now this word uh, is a unique word. It's the same word that we read in Exodus when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, oppressed by the Pharaoh, given work to do that they couldn't possibly complete. They were overwhelmed with the oppressive situation. Cried out to God for help when they were in Egypt. Here, they're overwhelmed with the weight of oppression that they're facing among their own countrymen, and they cry out to help. Not crying out to God, but crying out for assistance, crying out for aid. And their cries reached the ears of Nehemiah because they were feeling the weight of the problems they were facing. The first problem they were facing is a lack of food. They were not returning to their homes at night. They were not able to care for their fields. They were not able to bring in food. And so large families were wondering, how are we going to put food on the table for all of these people? We're starving, working diligently on the wall, carrying rocks, construction work, and yet not enough food to fuel their bodies. There was also a famine in the land, which made food increasingly scarce. And we don't know if this was weather-related or pest-related, but the crops were minimal. So paying for food for their families with high demand and low supply, the cost of food was becoming a huge burden. The second problem they were facing was debt. In the face of this high cost for food, in the face of trying to provide for their families, they were borrowing money, incurring interest from their fellow Israelites. Some were even putting up their homes and farms as collateral for those debts. There were others who were feeling debt because of the taxes that were required of them to pay to King Artaxerxes back in Susa, back in Persia. Because he controlled this whole region, their taxes went to him. And the taxes that they owed on the farms, they were then mortgaging those farms to pay the taxes, and then they didn't have even the means to pay for what they didn't have any longer. And so compounding that problem of debt was then Debt slavery, a common practice at the time when you couldn't pay a debt, you would then indenture yourself in service to the person that loaned you the money. You would become a servant in their household or sometimes a slave. Now, there are different ways this took place depending on the lender. Sometimes you could sell yourself or even your children into slavery and and making that transaction would cancel the debt, but you were permanently a slave. In other cases, you could offer the services of yourself or your children, your family, as payment, and you would work to pay off the debt with that lender. But the people of Israel had no control over the situation they found themselves in. 
That was dependent on what the lender imposed on them when they surrendered themselves to them. And the kind of work they would do, they, they weren't sure. They could be a household servant. They could be an indentured servant. They could be a slave laborer treated as less than human. They had no say in the process. But the circumstances they found themselves in were oppressive, were overwhelming. And certainly, not what God had in mind for his people. God had given his people clear instructions about how they were to treat one another. In fact, we turn back into the early pages of the Old Testament. We read a, a long list of instructions and laws that God provided to the people of Israel about how their conduct should be, how they should treat one another. We look at Leviticus chapter 25, and we read all about the, the, the way that the Israelites were supposed to care for one another, even when their countrymen were experiencing uh, Difficulty financially. The rule of law said that if someone among the Israelites couldn't pay, found themselves without, the other Israelites would then step in and care for them, providing for their needs, or lending them grain to eat, lending them money to pay for their needs, but not with interest, never with any interest, simply providing, knowing that they would give the money back when they could as an act of goodwill, as an act of care for their people. Now, God knew that some of those people would be honor-bound to offer collateral for those loans. No interest was supposed to be paid. But in the situation when someone would offer collateral and not be able to pay, they would then try and work off their debt with the lender. And God's instructions for the people of Israel were to never treat those people as slaves, to always consider them hired hands on their property, to pay them their wages or to keep those wages to pay off the debt, but to always treat them with respect as someone who was employed by their household. And if that situation continued, that those people would always be released in the year of Jubilee. Now, you may know about the year of Jubilee, you may not. I find it a fascinating principle. Now, God established the year of Jubilee based off the Sabbath. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he created for six days and rested on the seventh, the Sabbath, that he then instructed his people to rest one day of the week on the Sabbath. And he instituted a Sabbath year for the sake of the land. They were to work the land, plant crops, and harvest them for six years. And the seventh year, they were to let the land rest to recover and live off the stores that they had, they had stored up and not work the land on that seventh year. And then after seven of those seven-year cycles, 49 years had passed, the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, there was celebration, there was restoration, there was joy throughout the land because everyone who had a debt, that debt was forgiven in the year of Jubilee. Everyone who had given up their land or their property as payment for a debt, that deed would be returned to the original family. Every person who had given themselves into this kind of servitude to pay off a debt would be released to go back to their homes, back to their people. The year of Jubilee was a year of freedom. It's interesting to see how God very intentionally designated this celebration for his people. How, how very much God cared about his people remaining free. Now, the people of Israel knew what it was to be taken captive by a foreign people, to be enslaved, to, to feel the burden and oppression that would teach them the importance of obedience to God. We see this uh, in the story of 
Exodus when they were taken captive into Egypt. We see this in, throughout the stories of the reigns of the judges as the people were unfaithful to God, taken captive, oppressed, and then turned to God for guidance and lived in obedience again for a time. And now we see how this principle is playing out in the lives of the people of Israel who have been under the rule of the Persian Empire. Now they're allowed to go back to Jerusalem and begin working to restore their city, to restore the wall. And in the midst of that, their own people are taking them into slavery. They're oppressed by their own people. And it's something God never designated for them to do, something that he never wanted for his people, this permanent sense of slavery. God cares about the freedom of his people. Why? Because he wants them free to be able to submit to his will. When they're subjected to a master, they have no control over their own decisions and thoughts. They must obey. And they're not free to submit to the Lord and honor what it is that he's calling them to do. This is an important principle for us to think about our lives in terms of how we subject ourselves to authority, that we should always submit fully to the authority of God and never put ourselves in a position where we aren't free to submit to him because we've subjected ourselves to another form of authority in a person or a thing. How does that even make sense? We sit here in church and we think, well, I want to submit to the Lord. I'll always submit to the Lord. I'm not going to let anything keep me from doing that. But when we think about the relationships we have, the situations we find ourselves in, there are times when we very freely surrender to the authority of others, subjecting ourselves to their thinking and their decisions. Maybe in the place where you work, you have a boss. And you know that your boss has control over your working conditions. You know that your boss has say over the kind of pay that you receive. You know that your boss has control over your hours and your future advancement, your uh, promotion at some point. And so within that system, it's easy to find yourself surrendering to the authority of that boss in a way that's, that's overly negative, that you're uh, aligning to, with their way of thinking, that you begin to acquiesce to their, their, their opinions and their suggestions, and you surrender to their authority. Maybe you've experienced this from your family. You have a parent that's been hard all your life. You've, you've longed to just have their approval and affection. And even as an adult, you find yourself, when there's a success in life, calling home to tell your parents what you've accomplished so that you can hear those words, I'm proud of you, I love you. You're still desperately longing for that affirmation from a parent who was reluctant, who was hard, who was very strict and diligent. And because of that, you are bound to them seeking their approval. Maybe you have a friend or a group of friends and you desperately want to belong. You long for that connection and you find yourself among those friends or with that friend, doing things that you never thought you'd do before, agreeing to things that aren't really you. And you've allowed them to, to make decisions for you so that you can earn their attention, so that you can, you can belong with them, so that you'll continue to be invited to be a part of things. Maybe you have a relationship with someone, not, not, not a marriage relationship. That's a different kind of situation that's blessed by God in terms of submission to one another, a, a, a dating relationship. And as you're dating and you're discovering you know, the differences in your personalities, finding out if this is someone you might want to marry someday, you find yourself moving into unhealthy territory. You find yourself longing so much for the affection of this other person that you agree to do 
things that you never would have agreed to do. You find yourself willing to please them. Willing to agree. Willing to abide by what their whims are, what their decisions are, and you've surrendered. When we allow people in our lives the right to dictate our thinking, to control our decisions, we're no longer living for the Lord and seeking His will. We're subjecting ourselves to the authority of others. When we recognize that we've replaced God with another person, it's sometimes a very difficult difficult process to change that pattern of behavior, to, to, to step out from under that authority that we've willingly submitted to. It requires us to think about change, to, to pray diligently about the situation and, and turn, our, turn our lives back toward God and surrender to His will and to His way. Sometimes it means making big changes. Maybe it means changing jobs so that you then can have a fresh start with a, a new boss and not begin a relationship that way. Maybe it means breaking up, seeking a new group of friends. Maybe it means a significant change in life because of the way that you have surrendered yourself. And you need to turn to the Lord and allow Him to lead you and guide you so that you can seek His will and His way. These are problems that we face that sometimes we, we step into unwillingly, but when we recognize them, we need to resolve so that we can faithfully follow after the Lord. The people of Israel found themselves in the situation. Their difficulties were out of their hands. They had no power over the money lenders. They had no way to free themselves or their children who were working as slaves, and they cried out in anguish, cried out for help. It was Nehemiah who heard and came to their aid in verse 6. When I heard their outcry, Nehemiah said, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us, not, let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest that you're charging. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests, made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And Nehemiah heard this cry for help. He was angry. His anger rose to meet this problem that his people were facing. An intense emotion directed at those who were oppressing people, directing at the oppression of the, the, the wrong that was being done. The people who were standing in a position to be able to help their fellow Israelites, but instead were, were acting on their greed and gaining from the situation Typically, we think of anger as an unworthy response. Anger clouds our judgment. Anger destroys relationships. Anger causes us to say things that you know, we normally wouldn't have said. But there are times when anger is appropriate. 
There are times when righteous anger over wrongs is very appropriate, especially when we can separate the wrong that's being done from the people who are doing the wrong. And while we're dealing with this wrong, we can work with people. While we're dealing with the wrong that's been done, we can help people see how they've contributed to that wrong, help them see the error of their ways, and help them turn to the Lord, help them restore, help them work for the resolution of the wrongs that they've done. That's, that's the goal. Nehemiah's anger was pointed at the wrong, and he directed his words at the people who had done the wrong to point them where they needed to go to resolve the things that they had done. He began working to resolve that outcry that came to his ears. Now this outcry of the people, it seems like a desperate plea for help. And I imagine there was a long way coming as they realized the difficulty of their situation. They started to complain among themselves, to complain to one another. Now those complaints wouldn't really have accomplished anything. Maybe it made them feel better to gripe about the situation they were in. Maybe they started complaining to the people who were lending them money. This isn't fair. You can't do that. And obviously that had no effect. They were put in a position of oppression and cried out for aid, and Nehemiah responded. Nehemiah decided to make a difference. And instead of acting on his anger, he pondered the situation. He took time to think, to evaluate his plan, and recognize what he could do and what he couldn't do. Now, he couldn't do anything about the taxes. The money that was going back to the king, <laughs> taxes belong to the king. Nehemiah has no control over that. He can't do anything about the famine. He's, he doesn't control the weather. He can't control the bugs. What he can do is address the way that the officials were lording over the people, the way they were exacting interest, taking slaves, working against the welfare of the people for their own gain. And so he addressed the lenders, very clearly and logically stated the case. Here is the problem. You are part of the problem. It needs to be resolved. He had the courage to confront what was wrong. And he challenged the lenders to recognize how they could be a part of the solution, how they could begin aligning their lives again with what God had commanded them to do instead of sinfully oppressing their people. And they heard his message. They felt convicted, inspired. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll give back. We'll do what's right. And Nehemiah recognized that in the, in, the, in the heat of the moment, sometimes people will say things that they aren't willing to follow through on. And he wanted to make sure that these men who said, yeah, we'll help, were going to, to follow through and help their people. And so he called in priests. He said, well, this is a great, great thing that you've said you will do in the heat of the moment when you were inspired and convicted. But let's, let's make this an oath, an official promise that you will have to keep. And so they all made their oaths, committed to follow through. And then Nehemiah very physically demonstrated what would happen if they broke their oaths. He shook out his robes. What we would do today probably is turn out our pockets, dump out all the stuff that we have. So this is what's going to happen to you. Like a bully holding up a kid, shaking out the lunch money from his pockets. God is going to shake all of your goods away from you. They're going to fall out. He's going to pick your house up and shake your house until you fall out. If you disobey, if you go back on your word, God will take. He will shake your possessions out from the folds of your garments. Nehemiah corrected the problem by pointing the people to a very biblical solution. He didn't give them his opinion. Oh, life would be better if. 
He didn't look around at what culture was telling him was the most appropriate thing and say, well, maybe your relationships will be healthier if you align yourself with the world. No, he turned to Scripture. He turned to God's law and said, here's what God has said you're supposed to do to care for the people of Israel, and you're not doing it. Turn your lives toward what God has said you will do. It's always important for us to recognize God's word and to point our lives toward it no matter what we think, no matter what the world tells us we should do to align with Scripture. And the people worked to resolve their problems as they cared for one another. The lenders gave back. They gave back the interest that they charged. They gave back farms and homes. They restored those possessions. They set loose the people that were working for them as slaves, restored them to their families. This great moment of restoration. And yet the thing that couldn't fully be restored is the relationships that were broken between the lenders and the people who were being oppressed. This is something that would take time to heal those wounds, time to build trust again in those relationships. It was an important act, important commitment for each of them to align their lives by. And Nehemiah recognized the need for an example to be set for the people, for the nobles, for the rulers. Beginning of verse 14, we read about Nehemiah's example. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is a great example that Nehemiah provided. And in his recollection of these events, we learned some, some great information about him. That Nehemiah, not only in his service to the Lord and to his people and to the king, was there rebuilding the wall, he was appointed governor. This is the first time we've heard about this. That uh, This all is happening within this first year of change. If we remember back to chapter 1, it was the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. The beginning of the year, Nehemiah heard about the plight of his people, about the condition of the city. Four months later, he was before the king requesting to leave, to travel to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the wall. And the events transpired. Now, within that first year, he's also been appointed governor of the region, including the city of Jerusalem. And in the 12 years that he ruled as governor, he chose to live his life as an example of trust, faithfulness, and integrity. He chose to be an example of the kind of life that every one of God's people should live, but also, very importantly, that the rulers and officials should be living by. And because of Nehemiah's position, because of his wealth, because of his authority, he was able to provide an example for all people that the rulers wouldn't have turned away from and said, well, you can't, you can't understand my position of authority. You can't understand the burden of my life. I, I can't follow your example. You, no, Nehemiah could be that example, and they could all pay attention to the way he lived his life. Nehemiah listed all of the ways that he cared for the people, not taking 
for himself taxes, not taking for himself from the people the food allotted to him as the governor, and very clearly saying, all the rest of the governors that came before me did that, but not me, because my reverence for God, I chose to care for the people around me and supply for them food out of my share. I didn't want to put a great burden on the people. So he continued working for the good of the people, even when they didn't recognize what he was doing. Out of his reverence for God, he cared for them. And it's important to notice that even though Nehemiah compared himself to the previous governors, his ultimate authority was God. And that's, that's a, an important distinction to make when we think about what it is to be faithful to the Lord, to be obedient to God. That we can't measure our obedience off of the obedience of other people. That if our goal in our relationship with God is to be better than the people around us, we will still probably be falling very short of God's expectation for us. If we're being more generous than the people around us, if we're being kinder than people around us, if we're being more faithful than the world around us, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually being faithful to God. His standards are high, and they call us to a very clear example of life to live in obedience to him, out of reverence to him. That our motivation and everything that we do will be for God. Well, this last verse of this passage, Nehemiah said, Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. And some have said, well, that's, a, that's a very selfish thing for Nehemiah to say. After all that he's done, why would he, why would he ask for a blessing for himself? He sacrificed a lot. He's given for the, the good of the people. And then he says, well, God, have favor on me because of all these sacrifices I've made. And, and when you just read that statement, it does sound selfish. But if you consider the context of what all that Nehemiah has done, at the end of that burden, he says, God, remember me for all I've done. It, within the context, that's a, that's a plea for God's care as Nehemiah continued to depend on God as his source of motivation, as a source of strength to live the kind of example that he was called to. And we recognize the, the service that Nehemiah offered to the Lord, the service that we all have an opportunity to take part in, that when we care for others, we serve the Lord. When we choose to work for the good of people, every moment, every action, every word is an act of service to God. And if we're going to be faithful, if we're going to make that service meaningful, as an example, our motivation has to come from our reverence for God, our relationship with God. Any other motivation that we might have will not have the same power, endurance, or consistency that the motivation that comes from God will have in our lives. If our motivation is rooted in our pride, it will fail. Once we've succeeded in becoming a little bit better than other people, we could say, well, what I'm doing is more than anybody else has done. Our motivation will, will wash away. Once we've, we've surpassed our own expectations of what we thought we could accomplish, we'll, we'll be proud of what we've done and no longer be motivated to do more. If our motivation is based on our reputation, we'll only be motivated to be faithful so far as people are watching, so far as it improves our standing in their eyes. As soon as the crowd is gone, the motivation will leave with them. If our motivation is found in our feelings towards other people, our compassion, our empathy, then our care for them will fluctuate with our mood. 
And one day we may feel very generous and kind. Another day we might be really busy and grumpy and cranky and a need will come up and we'll say, you know, I don't feel like doing this today. We'll be limited by our own emotional response. If our motivation comes from our genuine love for one another, it'll still be limited by our own faults and failures and flaws and emotions. Our desire to care for others must be motivated by the love of God in us. Then it will go beyond our strengths, surpass our limitations, and exceed our weaknesses because it's born of God. When we act on the love of God, we become an example to the world around us. Not of what, what we can do. We become an example of what the love of God means to the people that we care for. We demonstrate to them how God cares for them. And we create for them opportunities to recognize the value of a relationship with God, the meaning of surrendering their lives to Him because they see His love expressed through us. That's what we have an opportunity to take part in. That's the example that we are able to provide. An example of the depth, the purpose, the greatness of knowing our God and living for Him. And through our actions, we get to help people come to know God's love. To hopefully accept Christ as Lord and Savior and begin living for Him. And we get to see how God will work in their lives, how His love will be made known and expressed and fulfilled. And that's what God's inviting us to be a part of. And this morning, I want to I ask you to think about what God is calling you to do, how God is calling you to respond, for you to, to personally make a decision for the Lord and begin living in Him. Or maybe God has a very clear opportunity for you to demonstrate His love in the world, to be an example for the sake of His love.